0: William, there is only one way to wrap up our first year of the audition.
1: Uh, You couldn't be more correct there. And it's with a man wearing hot pants, five-inch silver platforms, and a halter top embroidered with the word love over and over.
0: Well, to be clear, that man is Broadway legend, the trailblazer Andre De Shields. And his wardrobe choice is at the heart of what sounded to me like the greatest audition story ever told.
1: Honey, the New Testament has nothing (laughs) on Andre De Shields.
0: Andre's journey on Broadway has broken barriers. It's made generations of theatergoers see why representation and the arts must always converge. He is, I mean, simply one of the most important actors Broadway has.
1: He absolutely is, and it all started 50 years ago when Andre was just 25 years old, wide-eyed, fresh to New York from Chicago, auditioning for a landmark Black Broadway musical called The Wiz.
0: Listeners, this is a really special episode. It's somewhere between an interview and a one-man show. <laughs> I-, I think you're going to want to hear every word Andre says.
1: And sing, Staline. I almost lost it when he started singing Wilson Pickett.
0: Same, William. I mean, it took my breath away.
1: Happy holidays, everyone.
0: This is our holiday gift to all of you.
1: Let's welcome the one and only Andre de Shields.
2: this
0: is the best holiday gift
2: <laughs>
0: that you could have ever given us.
2: Oh, thank you. I'm hoping that we can uh, use the energy and the collaboration from today to get us into the new year yes. and, a better, and a better year.
0: You know, I've seen Town four times.
2: Only four times.
1: <laughs> well, Andre, this show is you know, obviously, called the audition, and I know that given your your 50 years of performing, and your incredible career, you've had some really incredible auditions. In fact, Stelina and I were talking this morning. We were both kids in New York City who went on school. Well, she went with her parents to see The Wiz. and I went with my sister in our school trip to see. You in The Wiz way back you were
2: when. You were, you were children.
1: We were, we were
2: indeed <laughs> children.
1: <laughs> we were lucky we were children still, who got we to see you. We were at the
0: theater. We right, were at right. the theater. Children you know?
2: at the theater, yes. Yes.
1: Yeah. You know, I know you have a lot of stories from The Wiz to hair, but would love to just hear kind of some of your experiences over your 50 years of just auditioning. And, and The Wiz was really sort of your first big audition, wasn't it? Big, no, meeting it Broadway.
2: Was- oh big, big meaning broadway yeah yes it was and it's the one i would love to talk about okay because the audition that i experienced for the wiz doesn't the style of the audition the content of the audition the essence of the audition doesn't exist any longer now what do i mean by that when i auditioned for the Wiz, it was in the majestic theater the theater that the show was intended to perform in that doesn't happen any longer now auditions are held in studios with, with bad lighting yeah yeah with bad lighting. yeah and a table of disinterested people who are trying to finish their tuna salad sandwiches (laughs) while you're singing your 16 bars and you're trying to get the most impressive part of the audition done before someone says next now that may be an over the top explanation of what's going on now but it's absolutely honest and truthful that the magic that is at the heart of the concept of auditioning is gone. When we were auditioning in the theaters that our shows were intended to open in, those of us who were auditioning were off in the wings. The ghost light was center stage. All right, so the magic already. The theater itself is dark with shadows. You can see in the distance about 10 rows back. The portable table that's been set up across the plush red seats, so that the artistic team has a temporary home. And they are only lit by these clip lamps so you can't really make out any really telling detail but you know there are individuals out there because you hear them speak you hear them speak among themselves and you hear them speak to you at the appropriate time and you know they're not eating because it's too dark (laughs) They couldn't possibly see any food in front of them so you know they're Their rapt attention is on you, whether or not you get the gig. They're paying attention to what you brought to the moment. Having set that up, you know that the Wiz is referred to as a soul version of Judy Garland's brilliant film, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. I am fresh from Chicago where I had done my first professional show, Hair, speaking of big auditions. (laughs) Now, today in my heart, I am an unreconstructed hippie. I don't know if you know any black hippies. The iconic one was Jimi Hendrix, but I still believe that the most powerful force in the world is love. Not affection, not lust, not like, but the, the Greek sense of love, agape, that I will put your desires, your needs before mine and you will put my desires and needs before yours. And that's the way we change. That's the way we grow. That's the way we evolve. I believe that still. I start there because I came from Chicago with that kind of intellect, that kind of emotional state, that kind of perspective on the world. I also came from Chicago thinking that New York was that place where people go to be their authentic selves for the zenith of self-expression as i arrived from chicago i came in a show called warp w-a-r-p do you know anything about that what year was
1: this andre
2: 1973
1: why and was this a broadway
2: production yes so now let me give you some background. My first professional show, the month I graduated from college, University of Wisconsin, Madison. Go Badgers. Hey. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go Badgers. Go Badgers. I landed my first professional gig in the Chicago production of Hair. It wasn't a national tour. It was a sit down production at what was then the Schubert Theater. Which is now the Private Bank Theater. Figure that one out. After Hair, I joined one of those original DIY companies in Chicago. It was at the Body Politic. It was a homegrown theater in in uh, Chicago. We created this piece, Warp. It was the kind of theater where the the residents of the theater did everything. We racked our own tickets, we made our own costumes, we made our own sets, that kind of thing. A young enterprising producer saw the show and thought it would be something new, different, exciting for Broadway. Well, we were summarily dismissed by Broadway critics and told to take our dirty hippie feet back to Chicago. But I had landed in New York, which is where I wanted to be ultimately. And I said to my compatriots, I'm not gonna return to Chicago with you. I'm going to um, pursue my destiny here in New York. That was February, 1973. We opened on the 14th Valentine's Day and two weeks later, we were gone. I did the necessary couch surfing. I had friends who were here doing uh, Tom Horgan's what was the play at the time, Jesus Christ Superstar. And you know, if you if you take care of my cat, you can sleep on the couch. If you wash the dishes while I'm away, you can sleep on the couch. That kind of thing. Within a year, the auditions for Whiz. For the whiz, were being held. All right, now, here I am, a hippie, coming from Chicago. The last thing I did, which was just so merrily dismissed by the New York critics, was Alexander the Unconquerable, ruler of the sixth dimension, the Organic Theater Company. Shaved Head, this is 1973. Mm hmm. When Michael Jordan was probably nine years old, he's the one who made made shaved heads famous. Mm -hmm. But I'm the OG. Oh, yes.
1: To be clear, yeah.
2: Shaved head. But what we did was we left right in the crown of my head, like a four inch square to which we had attached an 18 inch warlock. (laughs) (laughs) That's the look. (laughs) oh it was a look that sent people in new york running to the other side of the street that's why i started with this idea that i thought i was coming to the citadel of self-expression and here there were people looking at me and you know going to the other (laughs) side of the street thinking that their bodies were in danger of something or something.
1: They were afraid they were going to be snatched into the sixth dimension.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Kidnapped by some alien. Yes. <laughs> so I learned I learned from that, OK, grow in your hair, right? I was wearing my side, like, seven-inch earrings. So I thought, take out the earrings before Gregory Hines. Take out the earrings. <laughs> You know, let the holes heal up, that sort of thing. And I started seriously auditioning for what was happening in New York. Now, as a Black actor, I was only asked two things by casting directors. Can you dance? Can you sing? And I said, yeah, I can. But it isn't because I studied, it's because I grew up in the kind of culture doo-wop culture where we habitually sang under street lamps in the rain. And if you couldn't dance, you weren't black, right? That kind of thing. But that worked in my favor because I wasn't a cookie cutter copy of a graduate from Pace University, that kind of thing. Not putting down Pace, but I'm just saying I had something idiosyncratic whiz auditions i go i get cut from the auditions for the scarecrow because people can dance better than i can they've got the french vocabulary they they study the formula i get cut from the tin man auditions age to young i get cut from the lion audition not physically robust enough, which is all cool because what I wanted to be was the wizard. Mm -hmm. Now, part of the magic again was the producer, Ken Harper, an empathic man. Producers aren't empathic any longer. They're shrewd. They know if you don't make the nut, you don't have a show. I said to Ken Harper, please let me audition for the wizard. He explained to me that they were looking for a more Frank Morgan type, who played the, the wizard in the film, which meant older, a little more wizened, a charlatan, but I'm calculating in my, at the core of my soul. Now, wait a minute. The Wiz is being described as a soul version, of the wonderful Wizard of Oz. The music composed by Charlie Smalls is heavily influenced by the Motown sound. They want an old white guy or a lookalike to sing soul music? I don't think so. So I got as close to the floor, as close to on my knees as I respectfully could in front of Ken Harper and said, Please, please let me audition for The Wizard. Now you cannot beg (laughs) a producer for an audition these days, right? Because the producer would report you to HR, but Ken Harper, I melted his heart. He said, oh, okay. We will allow you to audition for The Wiz, thinking it would be, I would be cut again. Now let's go back to Chicago and how I arrived in New York. So I went home. I mean, it wasn't in a matter of moments. They gave me a date to come back. So I went home, I'd grown in my hair. I pulled it out to my Jimi Hendrix Hendrix at length. The The holes hadn't healed yet. I put the side earrings back, back in. I put on my five inch, silver pumps you know men men were wearing platforms then right i put on my hot shorts i put on my red halter that had love written all over it and i go back and i sing i'm gonna wait till the midnight hour when there's no one else around i'm gonna wait till the midnight hour when my love comes stumbling down so charlie smalls the composer stands up and says that's my whiz amazing yes because, ah, first of all, he'd never seen any, anything like it. <laughs> I
1: mean, the and outfit I, alone.
2: I, right, and, and the outfit alone, yeah. And, and this guy understood the kind of music I'm writing. Right. I was 25.
1: Like, that was kind of, what you did was kind of a power move. And it, it's a move that I think is precocious for someone who's 25 but something I would expect for someone who's been in the business you know, a, a little longer. But what, what gave you that confidence to say, I'm going in like this, I'm going to sing this? And like, how did you know?
2: First of all, I didn't know the New York business. I knew I wanted to be in New York for that corny reason. You can make it there, You can make it anywhere. New York was the shining city on the hill. Also, I had no obligation to any uh, ideology except to be my authentic self. That's the essence of being a hippie. I'm gonna be the best individual that I can be.
1: And that leads to fearlessness.
2: Ah, thank you. Because if you extrapolate that, you understand that there's no one like you. There's never been anyone like you. There shall never be anyone like you. So you have no competition. You have no reason to compete. It's a, it's a uh, potluck dinner bring your best dish no one knows your recipe except you so that's what i brought now there's no guarantee you're going to get the gig that's not the guarantee the guarantee is they're not going to see anyone like like you no one's going to bring what you bring that's what charlie small saw
0: yeah and so he gets up and says that's my whiz right and and what happens after that? Does everyone, is, is then the part yours?
2: Well, first of all, <laughs> when the composer says that, everyone else goes silent, right? And inside, well, outside I'm sweating, not only from the audition, but from the instant fever that I had once he said that outside, I'm sweating and inside I'm chilled. So, they, they escort me back to the wings, which is, which is also part of the magic because when they call you out from the wings, they call you Mr. or Ms. They don't do that any longer. But when it was my turn to audition, it was now Mr. DeShields will sing that kind of thing. And you walk in from the wings and you hear, Your footsteps echo on the bare floor in the dark theater. It doesn't matter at that moment that you may not get the gig. All of the magic that you've dreamed about is there. So at the end of the audition, the reverse happens. You hear your footsteps leaving the stage now. So they tell me that I have to come back to be seen with whoever else has been cast in the show. This is on 44th Street, the Majestic Theater, right? And remember how I'm dressed in my five-inch silver platform shoes.
1: And your halter One, top. Mm-hmm. At my
2: halter top, mm-hmm. which, is which is embroidered with a hundred versions of love. Love. Mm-hmm. And my hot pants. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and my hair. And my my sight, you're amazing. <laughs> and I'm on 44th Street. I go running down 44th Street during jetes, the best jetes that I could, mm. you know. Grand jetes. Yeah, grand jetes and five inch platforms. And a, a smile as if someone had slashed my throat from ear to ear, like the Cheshire Cat from Alice in Wonderland not knowing anyone, wanting to grab someone and say, guess what? To say that I was happy is an understatement because happy is for me is always spontaneous. It isn't something you can plan. It's something that the heavens drop on you when the universe decides to conspire with your destiny.
0: That sounds like quite a magical audition from the, the way you set the scene in the Majestic Theater and the Ghost Light and, and hearing Charlie Smalls get up and say that in the Grand Jete. After that audition and the experience of The Wiz, which wasn't expected to be a hit and then became a phenomenon.
2: Was, wasn't expected to be a hit. Is, is kind.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was doomed from the moment it was an idea. Yeah.
2: Right, exactly. We right, thought
0: it was going to close the, the next day, right? Yeah.
2: Exactly. We got the most chilling reviews. Mm. Still, those of us who were on the inside, although we couldn't put our finger on it, It had invaded our hearts that we were doing something necessary, something never before seen, and something that would ultimately be considered a game changer. We didn't know how, but we had the unshakable faith in one another, that we were going to overcome whatever obstacle that was looming on the horizon, and there were many, But we knew that as David, we would overcome Goliath. And that's the way it unfolded.
0: Can I ask you, Andre, because I I had a conversation with someone about reviews and the fact that in theater, you know, in a movie after a bad review, the movie is wrapped. Like it's out there. You're on to the next thing. In theater, a, a cast gets a bad review and they still have to go on that night and the night after. And you said you all sort of had a sense of what, that you were about something that was bigger than this review or, but, but how do you sort of take that and sort of come together as a cast and go back out there after reviews like that?
2: Let me say something general first. Our industry in no way is easy but we return to it because of its democratic discipline it is one of the truest longest standing and particularly now when authoritarianism is on the horizon theater is one of the last bastions of true democracy, where the individual knows that he must support the idea of doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people. He must allow himself to be subsumed into what's going to benefit all if not the majority i start there because it was the all of us it was the majority of us who carried that fire that knowledge who were aware of that interior architecture that the critics were missing god bless critics I have empathy for critics because as smart as they can be they can be equally myopic because their perspective can only be objective we who perform must be objective in order to get the thing together to make the pieces of the puzzle fit after which we get the almost indescribable pleasure of being subjective of looking at it from the inside out of tasting the cream that's in the puff knowing the secret of the, the entity that's being created and that's what was happening with the whiz we knew that we had something that was, that the universe was conspiring with to bring forth, to change Broadway essentially. Broadway for most of its history has been an inhospitable terrain to people of color. And I'm not even using the acronym BIPOC now. I'm just talking about the history of the great white way. Marginalizing to the edges of society any individual and any idea with even a soup song of melanin. This is exclusively white for exclusively white to be consumed by exclusively white, to benefit exclusively white. Don't bother to even submit your resume. Don't knock on the door. It's not about you. It's not for you, that kind of thing. We weren't just coloring, if you will, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. We were changing the politics of Broadway because we wanted to be part of the game. And the way to do that is to say, I'm in. I've got skin in this. We're not giving up. And I go back to Ken Harper, who doesn't get the credit that he deserves for innovating live action television commercials. Because when, as you uh, alluded to earlier, when we opened on Broadway on January 5th, 1975, opening night, the closing notice was posted. Now that's what producers have to do to protect their investment and also to be true to the contract they make with equity because you have to put up in escrow two weeks of salary for anyone who's represented by Actors' Equity Association. And that's all of the performance and all of the stage management. So you cannot be left in the lurch as non-union producers do. If they have problems on the road, they just close up shop and you have to find a way to get home. But when you put the escrow up in the bank, equity says, okay, we understand this industry can be problematic. You cannot continue with your show, fine. But you owe these performers and the stage managers two weeks severance pay. They can get home, you know, you can buy groceries. You can, you don't become suicidal because you've lost your gig. So you can imagine what the producer is feeling also is it isn't just the performers. You can imagine what the producer's feeling, having to post the closing notice on opening night. That didn't cause us despair or dismayed. That made us circle the wagons and say, we're gonna get this done. We know what we've got here. So Ken Hopper sold his rights to the show, to 20th Century Fox, to make a live action commercial Because he knew, we all knew, the people who would benefit from the whiz and who would change the tide were sitting at home on the couch watching television. So the live action commercial surprised them when they sit down, you know, with the popcorn or whatever they sit down with. And here these group of people, he's on down, he's on down. It's like what you doing sitting on the couch when this is waiting for you on Broadway? All of that complaining, all of that bitching you were doing about the Great White right Way is now about to change. But you gotta get your black ass off the couch. You gotta find $12.75 to buy a ticket. Is that what how much were tickets? Twelve dollars and seventy-five cents.
1: I remember those commercials. You were coming out too. of the subway. They were I yes. Too. I remember them sort of vividly. I mean, they were a long time ago, but yes, and I remember commercials from Ain't Misbehaving as well. That was incredible. Right. Wow. So so the audiences saved the show. The, the black audiences, audiences yeah. The
2: audiences save the show, and that's what we knew all along. We just have to tap into the people who. Are, who need this? Who have been begging for this? Who will identify with this? Because what is the most powerful means of promotion? Word of Word mouth. Of mouth. Mm-hmm. Word of mouth. Yes, agree.
1: Andre, your career, even back in the days at the University of Wisconsin, where you know you were a, a black hippie. Um, your career started and is rooted sort of in activism. Yes. And you had performed in a all nude production of Peter Pan, (laughs) which was sort of a a theater piece about kind of the civil war, the uh, civil rights and Vietnam. And you said, we were finally peeling the onion that was America and we were discovering some stank, some funky
2: things, some stinky things. Some deep funk, you know, and Funkadelic. Their whole karmic inventiveness was they were gonna drop you into some knee deep funk. And that's what we were attempting with With Peter Peter Pan. Pan.
1: But given that there's so much knee deep funk right now, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on your role as an actor, uh, the role of theater in activism and social change and and what you see happening on Broadway and what you see not happening enough of.
2: All right, so let me use The Wiz as a launching device here. So the, The Wiz finally made an inviolable statement. We are here and we're not going away. Get used to it, right? Start including us. And it made way, it opened the door for the next production I did.
1: So you think Ain't Misbehaving would never have happened if it weren't for The Wiz?
2: Would never
1: have happened. That's so interesting.
2: So it was, it was the proof
1: of concept they needed.
2: Yes, and other shows would not have happened if not for The Wiz. Even the shows that we are about to talk about would not have happened if not for The Wiz. Now, if The Wiz had failed, Broadway would still be exclusively white, but The Wiz did not fail. The Wiz went on to win seven coveted Tony Awards including Best Musical. So, the naysayers had to go somewhere with their tails between their legs, right? Because they were wrong, stank wrong, right? Now, let's fast forward. The pandemic. It's very curious. I don't I don't say the advent of the whiz and the pandemic are politically equal, but they achieve the same stasis, if you will. Both had to do with making the playing, leveling the playing field. That's what the whiz did, leveled the playing field so that other folks could see, ah, it is possible. Let's get in the door while it's open before it gets shut again. The pandemic visitation is serving the same purpose because we as a people, as a as a global civilization, have broken our covenant, if you will, with the universe, with the gods, with our creator, whatever you think that is and the covenant was that we would subdue the earth now we misunderstand the term subdue we think it means assault rape abuse no subdue the earth means to provide good husbandry collaborate with it so that we all can grow and evolve and be well that is not what we've done so the universe finally puts both its feet in our asses and says wait a minute stop in the name of love before you break my heart think it over and we've had 18 months to think it over some of us are getting it but still there are those of us who are recalcitrant we some of us who still think nature is to be used as opposed to be collaborated with Some of us still think that others of us are inferior, as opposed to understanding that we all are worthy, not for any reason or rationale, but simply because we all breathe the same air. We all live on the same planet. We all want the same things. The lesson that's being taught by the leveling of the playing field this time is appreciate this rare, this unique, this unicorn intersection that's happening in our lives. There are very few generations who stand at the crossroads of history and evolution. You either know history experience history or you experience evolution very few of us experience the effect that they have on one another and we are fortunate that we are living now to know that we are the arbiters of change that we are the decision makers about how the spaceship mother earth is going to go forward that we are now being asked to decide what is the impact of the entity of humankind going to be we all of us you you me everybody we all have to coordinate communicate collaborate get together and decide what is going to be the legacy of the entity called humankind
1: Staline, that was totally epic and historic. The genesis of a brilliant performance in The Wiz and the start of a monumental career.
0: No, I know. You know, it's not only the way he auditioned, it's his worldview and how he articulates it. You know, I love what he said about individuality. There's no one like you. There's never been anyone like you. There shall never be anyone like you, so you have no competition. That's an incredibly valuable piece of perspective to bring into an audition, or frankly, anywhere.
1: They are truly words of wisdom, and I actually might start saying that to myself in the mirror every morning. Celine, are you gonna go see Hadestown for a fifth time?
0: Of course I am. I remain <laughs> here to tell anybody who will listen, Broadway needs you. Go see a show.
1: Celine, I hope your holidays are wonderful.
0: Oh, uh, William, you too. Everyone, Merry Christmas and happy, peaceful new year.
1: Thank you all for listening to the audition. Please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and leave a nice review.
0: Hmm. We'll be back in 2022 with more of our Broadway favorites and their most important and entertaining audition stories.
1: The audition is produced by Rob Corso, Casey Kahn, and Howie Kahn for Free Time Media with me, William Lee.
0: And me, Staline Valandis.
1: Our music is by John Palmer.
0: Special thanks to Aaron Meyer, Scott Pask, Justin Robertson, and Lauren Tappan.
1: And to Martinis.
0: And to Champagne, but also to Martinis.
1: Cheers! Cheers.
2: Do we have time for a bonus? Oh, always. yeah. Okay. I want to share with whoever is listening or reading or whatever the deal is, a word that we borrow from the network of Bantu languages that are spoken in Southeastern Africa. The word is Ubuntu. Now, we all are familiar with the ancient yoga term, namaste, which means the divinity in me recognizes and salutes the divinity in you. Similarly, Ubuntu says, I am because you are. So I'd like to conclude this conversation with, Ubuntu.